Hi, this is Aaron, and I'm here with Roy. He'll be presenting some botany today. What would you be presenting to us today, Roy? All right, thank you, Aaron. Today I'd like to talk about the Burbank rhubarbs. So, um, as we've been discussing about the famous Burbank uh, hybrids, another one of these famous hybrids that uh, Burbank was able to bring to the public's attention is a perpetually barren rhubarb. And he had heard of such an animal, so to speak, Growing in Australia, there was someone by the name of Mr. Top. It was known as uh, the Top's Winter Rhubarb, and it had the unusual characteristic of growing through the winter, whereas most rhubarbs will go dormant for winter, his rhubarb would keep on growing. Uh, so, again, Luther Burbank was very interested in getting a hold of uh, his variety, and, uh, and I think it took him at least a couple of tries to get viable plants via New Zealand uh, to, uh, to his place in Santa Rosa. He, uh, he described the original Topps winter rhubarb as having leaf stalks about the size of a pencil. So as far as uh, commercial viability, it didn't have much, but as far as uh, its habit of producing leaf stalks through the winter, it had a lot of potential, and Burbank saw this, and so that's why he set about to improve uh, the Topps winter rhubarb. Uh, so this is what uh, he did in the early 1890s or so, I believe, is when he uh, got plants. And uh, about the year 1900 is uh, the year that uh, Luther Burbank introduced his Australian Crimson Winter, which was a significant improvement on the original Topps winter rhubarb. And the point I'm making about the original Topps winter rhubarb is that I have read that that clone also went to England and breeders there uh, did pretty much the same work that Burbank did in improving it and uh, it retained the name so it was improved but they kept the name so uh, just wanted to make the distinction that the original had very uh, small leaf stalks but did have the characteristic of growing through the winter uh, which is which turned out to be especially valuable for mild winter areas such as Southern California in fact, at one time, uh, Whittier, yes, that's the city of Whittier, was the rhubarb capital uh, of Southern California. Uh, great production of rhubarb occurred there, and uh, using uh, Burbank's rhubarb, in fact, uh, probably his original, uh, that being the one introduced in 1900, called the Australian Crimson Winter. Now, as a kid in the 1970s, uh, my grandpa, Grandpa Dykstra, got our family some plants from someone he knew in Fallbrook. I believe now, looking at the old pictures and having returned to Fallbrook to search for the plant, that that is the clone that was the first Burbank clone. It's the one that uh, he called the Australian Crimson Winter. It's a perpetual bearer, does very well in our area. It does produce leaf stalks, especially through the winter, the rainy season. March uh, has been the best month of the year with the rain uh, and the cooler temperatures, of course. The reason to make the mention about rhubarb is uh, it seems that uh, much of today's generation doesn't know much of anything about it. Um, rhubarb, I believe, originates in uh, Central Asia and is very popular in Northwestern European cultures. And uh, so um, I grew up with it and uh, as a tart taste, it's sweetened typically the stalks. The leaf blades, by the way, are poisonous. They contain high levels of oxalic acid, which is very bad for your kidneys. 
In fact, it was found during World War II when starving British citizens ate the leaf uh, blades that they became very seriously ill, if not uh, fatally so. And uh, so it's the leaf stalks, and the color doesn't seem to matter. Typically people look for red, but uh, it does not seem to make that much of a difference, red or green. There will be differences, of course, in flavor, but uh, as far as uh, edibility is concerned. Uh, and of course for eye appeal, uh, the redder it is, the more appealing it is. So, so I grew up with rhubarb in the 1970s. We had it for a long time. We had problems with uh, little tiny uh, red and black ants that would mine tunnels through the crown of the plant which would stress the plants uh, heavily, especially during the summer months. Uh, over 100 degrees temperatures uh, didn't help anything either, but uh, our plants lasted until I think the early 90s. But uh, so I grew up with it, I knew about it, and uh, I wanted to get plants again. And we thought, uh, talking to my folks, that maybe it could still be found at Fallbrook. And so my mom and dad and myself made a trip down there to Fallbrook to look for the original place where my grandfather had gotten the plants and we were not able to find it unfortunately. Um, I did stop in at a prominent nursery and asked about it and I was given the name of someone who uh, was uh, involved heavily in a garden club in the Fallbrook area and we met the elderly couple and on a subsequent trip I called and received uh, no answer but they called again about a year later and yes it turned out that they did have rhubarb and so uh, my dad and I made a second trip down to Fallbrook and were able to uh, secure a plant and it does look uh, for all the world just like the clone that we grew back in the 70s so uh, very excited to have it again um, so uh, getting back to the earlier theme where I described that I believe one of his uh, Burbanks, that is, uh, biographers uh, discussed Burbank breeding in terms of octaves uh, for you, those of you musically inclined. He continued his work on uh, rhubarb and came out with his giant uh, winter red uh, some years later and then uh, there were a few other varieties but in uh, 1909, or 1909, for those of you who prefer to hear the term that way, he came out with a circular uh, on rhubarbs. And so uh, there were some 36 varieties. There were giant rhubarbs, uh, all of them giant. They're all larger uh, in stature than the original Australian Crimson Winter, uh, itself an improvement upon the original Topps Winter rhubarb. And they were all uh, winter, uh, perpetual bearers, so they grew through the winter. So. Again, there's another opportunity for those of you uh, good at sleuthing, uh, missing plants, missing varieties. I did uh, post something with the California Rare Fruit Growers a, a, a few years ago, and I did receive reply from someone living in Los Osos, California, who had a rhubarb. Uh, this was actually before I found the original that we had grown back in the 70s, and uh, was delighted to get a, a start, a division. Typically, rhubarb plants are grown from divisions. Someone takes a shovel into the, the crown of the plant, separates a piece off with a large chunk of root, and then the plant is grown that way. It can be grown from seeds, but uh, most of the time, uh, people just acquire a division. And so, uh, with my rhubarb searches, I was able to uh, get that clone. There was another clone growing in a historic district of Ontario, California, at a property that uh, my brother and his wife were renting from someone. He had a, a plant that he had gotten from someone else uh, some seven or eight years earlier. I made a trip up to uh, Sebastopol and uh, had the good fortune of meeting Fred Revatria, who 
had a giant rhubarb, probably Burbank's giant winter. Um, as it turns out now, it's, it's a large growing plant, especially under the favorable conditions of uh, high rainfall and cooler temperatures. Anyway, Fred told me that uh, he got his starts from uh, 40 years earlier from an 80-year-old man who lived down the road from him. So uh, how's that for a pedigree uh, right there? So feel fairly confident that that's a Burbank variety. I can tell by looking at it already. And not only that, but that it may be uh, his crowning rhubarb of all of his rhubarbs. A visiting scientist, George Scholl, uh, also commented that Burbank had no fewer than three dozen giant rhubarb varieties. So um, the reason for bringing this out is that uh, I have found, I believe it is seven, I, think, I believe I have eight, or had eight, one I grew from seed. So uh, typically uh, seeds grown of hybrid plants do not come true uh, to type. So I do have one grown from seed that was uh, mislabeled as a Chinese rhubarb, but because it is a perpetual bearer, it does not go dormant in our winter or mild winter and uh, other reasons. I believe it was uh, the seed was collected off of one of Burbank's originals. Now there had been some other work done in the Pasadena area a long time ago on Burbank's rhubarb, so it is possible that for any surviving clones that may still be found that they not necessarily uh, are Burbank's, but uh, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that uh, they probably are. So typically, uh, maybe in uh, coastal communities, uh, especially up and down the state, I think some of these uh, rhubarbs may have been sent to South Africa, possibly even to New Zealand and Australia. But I do believe in communities such as Lakewood and the LA area and other, other uh, like uh, coastal plain communities, and just basically coastal communities where the summer temperatures uh, are more forgiving for uh, a colder weather loving plant such as rhubarb, that there are more to be found. And, uh, and it'd be great, it would be great to find uh, the rest of them, so to speak. Uh, there's a lot out there. I'm sure that there that there's more. Um, I like I said, I've found probably seven I acquired as divisions, plus one grown from seed. I believe they are all distinct, and I do believe they are Burbanks. And there's more to be found. So um, maybe one would like to have a bowl of rhubarb uh, soup as it's typically prepared, uh, cutting the stalks, the leaf stalks, up into pieces, boiling them for about 10-15 minutes with some sugar. Sometimes uh, extract of vanilla can be added for additional flavor, but uh, the Burbank rhubarbs were so good on their own, they didn't really need the addition of uh, vanilla extract. And then uh, go look for some rhubarbs, especially during uh, the months January through March. I think that would be the opportune time to check around. I mean, this is not something that could be as easily done as searching for cactuses by driving up and down roadsides, but uh, probably more through just networking, social networking, and if you you're a really, really socially inclined person or have a lot of connections, you can just check around and just check every clone of, of rhubarb that is still to be found, uh, making sure that it isn't, for example, the, uh, the old uh, Victoria variety, but uh, a genuine uh, Burbank variety. Uh, they are around. They are hard to find. Um, the profile, if I, if I may use the term, uh, Typically, it's been my experience, people with German or German-sounding last names are, are the ones who typically uh, have these rhubarbs, uh, some Dutch, some Dutch names too. So, uh, 
and you know that's sort of like the profile uh, that I would expect uh, people to find. Uh, maybe probably elderly people uh, that have those kinds of last names would be the, the likely sources of finding the uh, remaining uh, lost uh, Burbank rhubarb hybrids. Exciting stuff. I'd really like to see uh, many more found and I'm sure that there are more whether all 36 plus the original are still around is hard to say, but uh, definitely there are more, I'm sure of it. So, so good luck. Okay, and I know that you wanted to talk about the Gerber Daisy as well. The Shasta Daisy. Oh, Shasta right. Daisy. Just so. a, a brief blur about the Shasta Daisy. There's, uh, the, the Shasta Daisy is, uh, is a, a hybrid of four species of basically oxeye daisies. The, uh, Burbank was fascinated by the, the New England oxeye daisy that grew wild in his area while growing up in Massachusetts. So he crossed it with a, uh, a British oxeye daisy uh, species and was just trying to look for more flowers, larger flowers. Uh, he wanted you know sturdy flower stalks and just the whole shebang. Uh, he had in mind what, uh, he had in his mind's eye what he wanted to bring out including those characteristics and more and whiteness uh, so so he used the uh, the native american species found in new england uh, you know colloquially referred to uh, by the common name uh, oxide daisies and the one uh, english daisy or the oxide daisy of britain crossed those two together and then crossed the resultant uh, hybrids of those with um, the continental european species so after the the three parent cross uh, the resultant plants were much improved, large flowers, uh, you know, larger flower, big flowers, uh, the plants look good, but it was missing one thing. It was missing uh, the trait of whiteness. Uh, in fact, uh, of those resultant hybrids, Burbank showed them to people. He'd asked uh, the average person, well, do you see one in this bed of flowers that's whiter than the others? And they said, no, they all look the same. So there was an artist who came out from San Francisco uh, who looked at his plants, uh, his, his then uh, daisies. Uh, they weren't quite called the Shasta daisies yet. And she noticed one right away, that it was much wider. It wasn't just wider, it was much wider. And uh, this really delighted Burbank. He really was glad that uh, someone could uh, corroborate uh, his claims that there was one wider than the others, and not just a little bit, but way wider. And she was an artist, and she saw it right away. So he was uh, very happy that uh, she could confirm uh, his thinking about that flower. So he took it, and since it wasn't quite the perfect white, he acquired a species from Japan that uh, is known to have pure white flowers. And so he took it and crossed it with the, the Japanese daisy. And then from that, a uh, total of around 17 years later, he was able to uh, introduce his uh, Shasta Daisy, uh, named after Mount Shasta with its snowy peak. So um, it's a nice little story. There were other varieties. There was actually a variety that was introduced just a few years after that that actually had uh, yellow flowers called California. So there was this, the original strain of Shasta Daisy. I'm not sure. It's probably around. And then uh, just a few years later, I think in 1903 or so, there was a catalog where or a circular that Burbank put out where he describes three other varieties of Shasta Daisy. He gave names to them. One was called, I think, Westralia. One was called California. And I believe uh, the first one in that catalog was called Alaska. 
So as I understand the literature, there's the original Shasta daisy, and then there were the three other varieties. And since that time, of course, there's been probably literally hundreds of varieties of Shasta daisies. But, uh, but those four are the ones I've uh, tried to, to home in on. The Alaska Shasta daisy uh, is around. Now, I'm not sure with the, uh, the one called California, which had yellow flowers, uh, ironically, because there are uh, newer hybrids people have taken uh, patents out on presumably their own uh, hybridizations, results of their own experiments, uh, which do have the, the yellow petals. But uh, Burbank did have one also as far back, I believe, as 1903. So uh, very interesting. Um, and uh, there may be some opportunity there, too, for someone looking around, especially in the Midwest, uh, where there may be the original strain. How cool is that to find the original strain of Shasta Daisy? And then, uh, of course, compare it with the, uh, the Alaska and the Australia and maybe the California also. So. Well, thank you, Roy, for this wonderful another jigsaw of botany. It is so interesting trying to trace back the lines and figure out who began and were so interested and wanted to create something new. Um, if you have any information, if you're interested or have any clues to the path, go ahead and in email Roy. His email is? It's rhwiersma at aol.com. That's r-h-w-i-e-r-s-m-a at aol.com. And you can also email us here if you're interested in talking with Roy or have information at programming, that's P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-I-N-G, at 963-K-O-Y-T.org. Thanks for joining us for this educational romp.